Hey, uh, anyone here ever been critical of church? Like, seriously, I mean, you ever come on a Sunday to church and, like, be critical? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm probably the most critical person of church when I sit in churches, and, and it's like it can ruin your whole Sunday. Justin and I sometimes, like, have to pull each other out of depression on Sundays because we'll be so critical of church. And, uh, and so sometimes what we do, do you know, like, church really isn't about a service, it's about a group of people kind of pulled together. Uh, the Greek word ekklesia literally just means a group gathered. So in, in the book of Acts, when Paul got stoned because a group of people had gathered together to stone him, that was an ekklesia. It was a church in some sense. Um, so if you judge against those people, you're, you're doing pretty good. But he took, Paul took that word and, and kind of baptized it and made it an official gathering of God's people for his purposes. And so church really is about the people. And, and when we gather together, one of the things we do is we worship, we teach, but the church itself is people. So what Justin and I do when we're depressed is we just criticize you guys. <laughs> and let me tell you, I'm just kidding. Um, I think it's important because what I want to talk about this morning is, is our calling. And, and what we got to understand is if we're a Christian, we're already living and manifesting our calling, either well or, or, or not so well. But we are, we are bearing a mark. We're branded in some sense. We are slaves for God. We're servants of God. We're his witnesses. And, and our calling at the rock bottom sense is more about who we are than what we do. And whose, I mean, a little cheesy way of saying it, but whose we are. And so we this morning, as the church, as the ecclesia, the people of God, we're living our calling. And I think we lose sight of that in America because we so think that calling is about a title or a position or something we're accomplishing or doing that it's like a Christian version of, of wealth and fame, like What's that secret thing that I can pull the trigger on and all of a sudden go from here to there where the angels sing and everything is perfect? And, and it's not. It's not like that. It's so much more about who you are. What, what do you make of people who are Christians or followers of God in, in uh, concentration camps or political prison camps where they're going to die? I mean, they're never going to have a chance to go do or exercise their gifts, or act on their calling, um, can God still use them? Are they still called? Are they still able to be witnesses of God, even though all that's going to happen in their life is a lot of pain and suffering and then death? Um, and, and I think if we really understand calling, they can exercise and live within their calling, even if all that's left is pain, suffering, and death. And you this morning, if you're coming in and you're like, I don't have many talents, I don't have any money anymore, I don't even have any energy anymore, my life is closed in on me, what could I possibly give or do to change the injustices of this world? Look, there's a part of your calling that is so fundamental to who you are that if all you have left is pain, suffering, and death, um, you are still God's chosen one. You are still someone who is able to witness 
to a risen Savior and manifest the glory of God and the grace of God and the hope of a resurrection. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's pray, and then uh, I'm excited to, to just talk about calling this morning. Father, we would commit this morning to you. It's your church. We are your people. All of us, each and every one of us, man, woman, and child, has the ability to be in a relationship with you, to have unity with you that would make you pleased and make you happy and make you excited. And we would just pray that this morning would not be about us grabbing for glory through Christian means, but that we would be trying to find things and become wiser and in some sense more knowledgeable about ourselves and about this world so that through those means we could bring you more glory. We want to just be with our dad and we want to see a smile and we just want to feel that relationship, Father. I just pray that you would give us the wisdom, the discernment, convict us, encourage us, whatever it be that we might be able to better know you. In Christ's name, amen. Last week at the Justice Conference, they, they were really tight with how much time I had. I'm not used to that because I don't let my staff tell me how much time I have on Sunday mornings. You guys know that. Um, <laughs> it's, but so I was really tight on time. And so uh, there was a couple things I was talking about, and I got to one at the end and, and realized that I was running short on time, and so I kind of had to blitz through it. But it had to do with calling. And all week as I've been processing and, and talking to people, I think there's this question of calling that's just huge. Uh, I've talked to moms who were at the Justice Conference and heard this, the global soccer mom, which is a pretty cool title, right? And, and they hear the global soccer mom, and they're like, man, I'm a soccer mom, but how do I become a global soccer mom? That just shuts me down. Like, how do you do that? You know, how do you be friends with Bono and travel the world with three kids, you know? Um, and... And the funny thing is, is the global soccer mom, Shane Moore, she didn't start that way. She started just being obedient, living in a very, you know, Wheaton, Illinois is the most churched part of the country. She started in a very churched part of the country where people weren't necessarily thinking about AIDS in Africa. And Bono came through and, and literally rocked her world, and she began to just be obedient to the empathy, to what she felt like God was asking her to do, one step at a time. And over the course of years, she, she's now the global soccer mom. And so she never went from like, oh my gosh, I'm not the global soccer mom. How do I go from here to here? Um, she was just faithful to what God was calling her to do. And I think sometimes when we talk about calling, it becomes this overwhelming thing. It becomes this like, swinging for the fences, home run shot, like if I just get it right, maybe I can actualize my calling. And, and we don't really understand this idea of our Christian calling. So I want to talk about two things because I think they go together. And the first is calling, and then the second is capacity. Calling and capacity. And so hopefully this will help encourage you a little bit. I mean it to be encouraging, but I think we all have the ability to grow into or to live out effectively our calling as Christians, as, as people that have been created for purposes that God has for us. And so the first thing I would just say with your calling, let me, let me back up real quick. 
calling is, is set for you before you were born. We read Ephesians 2.10 a couple weeks ago, but it's God has created good works for you from before you were born. God has shaped you. He's gifted you. He's put you into the family that he put you into. He allowed certain traumas to happen in your life. Well, all of those things become a part of who you are, and who you are really has inherent in it what you can do, who you can reach. And part of your calling is just simply who God has allowed you to be, and it's, it's, it's the shaping. He knew you before you were born. And so uh, the gifts he gave you, he gave you. He gave you. It means he had an idea of what he wanted or thought was possible, and he gave you gifts. And he called some to be apostles and some to be teachers and, and on down, gifts of mercy, all sorts of different gifts. And so God has already gifted you a certain way. And so the easiest way to get at gifting, if you want to know, like, man, what's my, what's my calling? What's my gifts? It's, it's just, well, who are you? Who are you? What are you effective at? What have you always been effective at? What have you always been drawn to? What has just always kind of stirred your passions? You have a heart for something. What is that thing? What have people always affirmed you for? What's the trauma that you were healed from, but now you have this special place for people that are going through that trauma? What are those things? And beginning to discern those is a real big part of understanding how God made you and what your calling is. Secondly, all Christians, like I said before, are, are called. There was something going on in the Middle Ages where there was a, a divide between secular and sacred. And secular just means common. It's just common. So if you weren't working in the church, which was sacred back in the Catholic days, um, you, you were working in the secular world, just the common world. You were a, a blacksmith. You were a teacher, you, you were just doing common things. It had nothing to do with Sunday Mass. And so you're over here in the common world, and then you would come to the cathedral, and the cathedral is just, wow. At the basilica, the cathedral, the church, basically, and you're just like, man, look at this place. It's unreal. And then there's these people, and they're, they're wearing different clothes, and there's incense, and it's just so different. It's sacred. And these people are doing the work of God. These people are doing ministry. And one of the cries of the Reformation in the 1500s was what was called the priesthood of all believers, was that there, there really is no secular, sacred divide that it says in First Peter that, that we are all um, priests, we're a holy nation, that, that those of us that have been called, we're all spiritual beings, and what we do is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. And so if you're a blacksmith, or if you're a dentist, if you're whatever, even a lawyer, you're you're somebody that is able to do what you do to the glory of God. It's this intentionality. It's in this area that I'm working, I can leverage my influence, my relationships, the opportunities. I can leverage that for, for God's work, for justice. Um, you guys are all sick of talk about justice, and, and so I kind of was going to avoid it, but I'm not going to avoid it. Here's a real interesting thing. <laughs> Back to the whole story of genocide, and you've got a whole people in concentration camps about to be killed. That is a byproduct of unjust, unjust structures 
in government and a culture that allows the oppression of other people, right? Nothing squelches the opportunity for people to use their gifts more than injustice, right? So there's something really interesting about Scripture and how God seems to care about justice almost as a prerequisite to everything else, that the whole society first has to be set up justly, and I will punish the rulers, the leaders, everybody else, if you allow it to become unjust or where people are oppressed. But when we're talking about people using their God-given gifts to bring good into the world, nothing keeps that down more than, than injustice. So when we're talking about calling and capacity, it's a real fun American thing. What can we do? What can we do? Well, if we allow injustice and oppression to take place, the second conversation never even occurs, does it? It's, it's fascinating. In, in the Old Testament, God takes the Israelites out of Egypt, where they were slaves, brings them into Israel and says, remember, you were slaves once. In other words, empathy will lead you to treating foreigners and poor people and underprivileged people a certain way because you identify with them, empathy. And when you stopped remembering, someone told me a fascinating thing about Jewish culture. When, when, some, when somebody doesn't remember the Passover, when they don't celebrate the Passover, they forget the Passover. And the saying is, um, forgetting is pride. Because the Passover was all about remembering where you came from and that God saved you out of that. And if you stop celebrating the Passover and remembering, it's like cutting yourself off from that history and cutting yourself off from the knowledge that you yourself were once a slave. And so forgetting is pride. It's a fascinating thing. So when the Israelites began to forget and became proud and justice was not there anymore, what does God do? He puts them into slavery over here in, in Babylon. So they were slaves here. He brings them here and says, because you were slaves, you're going you're to do justice. And then they, they stop doing justice. He goes, okay, I'll put you back over here where you're slaves again. Maybe you'll remember what that's like, and then I'm going to bring you back. It's like a, it's a discipline thing for a time, for a season. God even said beforehand, I will discipline you, but then bring you back. Now, if you're a dad or a father, even if you don't discipline perfectly, you know that discipline is about, it's about correction, right? That when you discipline, it's about correction. When God disciplines the nation of Israel, it's about correction. So he's got them in slavery again. Why? To correct what's going on and how they, they handle themselves. And so our calling is something that's just innate. We need for calling, our calling, for gifts to work, for us to be able to be free. We need, we need certain structures, we need justice. We need to care about justice. It's a prerequisite. All right, but here's a couple things specifically about calling. If you'll turn with me, we're going to look at a, a couple different passages here. The first one is, is Matthew. Matthew 19, verses 28. Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So on one side, he's beginning to juxtapose the rich. And Peter says hey, we've left everything. We're not like that rich guy, and we followed you. And then Jesus says in verse 28, so this is Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, 
at the renewal of all things when the Son of Man sits on, on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. There's a rigidity to being rich. And on the other side, there's a malleability, a malleability when, when we hold things with open hands and we're willing to give things up or let go so that we can follow. There's a, a malleability. And so one of the first things about our calling is realizing if we really want to live out a calling and thrive as a Christian and be used by God in mighty ways, we have to be malleable. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 9 and, and read this a different way. Matthew chapter 9, verse 16 and 17. Jesus is again comparing this time not to rich people but to legalistic people or people who have it all figured out or religious people that think it's black and white and he's, he's comparing that kind of rigidity. Have you, have you guys ever noticed that religious people can become really rigid? There's, there's an unhealthy side to religion where we can overdo it and we become so in our categories and about behaviorism that we become really rigid and, and not malleable. And, and so this is now the juxtaposition. And Jesus says this. Listen to what he says. Verse 16. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, what they actually do is they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. What he's really talking about is his ministry and his message. And he's saying, I came into the world. There's Romans, there's God-fearing Greeks, there's a bunch of things, and there's these religious leaders. And I can't work with them. There's a rigidity there that I can't steer them or shape them or mold them for my purposes. And so they're an old wineskin. And if I pour my message, this new covenant, into that, it'll crack and it'll ruin it. So not only will it ruin them, but it'll ruin my message. One of the reasons I try to avoid at all costs very legalistic people is because it's a battle that nobody wins in. Because one of the things about legalistic people is if I really asked the question, would you ever change based on anything I say? If they were really being honest, their answer would be no. I'm not even here to hear you, Ken. I'm here to tell you what you're doing wrong, you know. So there's no, there's not going to be any change there. And my time and my energy in that conversation is going to be wasted. And that takes away from my ability to what, spend time with my kids, do meaningful things. And so there's nothing productive that comes from that. Does that make sense? And so Jesus is saying, look, if I put myself into that environment, it's going to be bad for that environment. It's going to be bad for my message. So I just ignore it. And I've gone and I've found a couple fishermen, tax collector, 
this real crazy guy that's like a, a zealot, and he just, he's aggro, you know, and likes to knock heads, but he's malleable, you know. And so Jesus goes and finds malleable people. The, the word Tamar and I use for this, and, and it started back when we were getting married, is teachability. <clears throat> teachability. I think, this is, this is not the Bible speaking, this is me speaking. I think the greatest of all virtues is teachability. Because without it, whatever you are will remain what it is. You know, most people, you watch them over the years and they just don't change much. Their character doesn't really change much. You're positive two on whatever thing it is. Ten years later, you're still positive two. But I'll take a negative ten who's teachable. I'll take the guy that just became a Christian and his life is a wreck, but he is sold out for God. And you can tell there's something in there, a fire burning, and that person has no pride, no pretensions, just wants to grow and wants to learn and wants to be with God. And that negative 10, 10 years later, it's going to be a positive 10. And I think teachability is the greatest of all virtues. Why? Because it's the thing that will help all the other virtues grow and develop and mature. Does that make sense? A more biblical way of saying it would be humility. But I think we've gotten really weird on humility. Actually, uh, let me see if I can dig it out. The C.S. Lewis has a great way of saying it. He says, we, miss, we misapply humility. And he says, what we do with humility is we, we think humility means being dishonest about our strengths. So it would be like Micah saying, oh, no, I'm not that good. No, God didn't give me any gift. I really don't even know what I'm doing. You know, it's like, that's false humility. But we kind of think that's what humility is. It's kind of just a social correctness. And C.S. Lewis says, no, that's not humility. Humility is being honest about your strengths, but also being honest about your weaknesses. It's about an overall honesty that brings into it a recognition of our, our need, our dependence, our weaknesses, and our failings. It's not being dishonest about strengths. It's being honest about weaknesses. Does that make sense? And when we're sometimes the, the most rough people, kind of like fishermen or tax collectors or UFC fighters, you know what I'm saying? Sometimes the rough, roughest people know that they have these weaknesses. And so they're the most teachable people. Have you ever seen that to be true? Some of the most amazing Christians you know, if you really tracked it back, started as some of the most rough Christians you know. So there's a malleability to our calling that if we really want to be used by God, we have to be willing to learn. We have to be teachable. We have to be moldable. We have to be willing to make sacrifices. We have to be willing to make significant changes. And what we begin to realize is that moldability is what allows us to go from where we're at here through iterations that eventually lead us to being a global soccer mom. Because it doesn't start with a book deal and Bono. It starts with a recognition that the little Christian bubble you've inhabited 
didn't have within it a recognition of some things that God really cares about and a willingness to admit that and go, wow, my, my worldview has been a little bit small and I haven't had necessarily the same heart for things that God has and, and I'm willing to learn, God. Let me start here. Let me try and be a little bit different. Teach me. And it, it starts with teachability and humility. God says... Uh, that he exalts the humble. So again, the greatest of all virtues in some sense is the one that allows God to work with us. But God can't do anything with pride. Pride is rigidity. Pride is rigidity. So the first thing here is malleability. Now the second thing, it's a little bit, it's a little bit, um, follow me here. It's, it's, uh, let me start it with a philosophical kind of hook to it. Um, there's the word in philosophy for knowledge, the study of knowledge, is epistemology, which means beliefs and, and study of. But epistemology, it's the study of knowledge, it's the study of what you believe, how you come to believe those things. Um, that's the word epistemology. Now, I find that most Christians are really hungry to know God. Do you want to know more of God? Anybody? We sing songs like, ah, oh, I want to touch you, which is really weird, by the way. I'm, I'm not into those songs. Because if you look at the Bible, it's kind of like, whoa. If someone were to preface it like, like the woman who is bleeding that fought through a crowd to touch the hem of Jesus' garment, we were fighting to get at you. God, then I'm okay singing that song. If it's some kind of feel-good, sing-it-to-your-girlfriend kind of song that we're singing to God, and you know what I mean? I'm not cool there. But we all resonate with this idea of we want to know God. And we want more of a relationship with God. And we're confused when we don't know God. Now, the, the two craziest things, I think, in, in all of Scripture are, one, how easy it is to know God. And two, how difficult and mysterious it is sometimes when we don't know God or feel God's presence. This is the Psalms. Have you ever read the Psalms? where there's these dark days and people are crying out for God and, and searching for God. We're, we're lost in the middle here and just going in circles, and we don't realize that half of it is so much easier than we think, and half of it is just so much more mysterious, and there is no formula. It just is mysterious, more mysterious than we I want to talk about this side for a second, okay? It's so much easier than we think. And so I developed this phrase, the epistemic trigger, the epistemic trigger for knowing God. What I mean by that is, what are the things, the epistemic trigger, by which our relationship with God becomes in some sense that easy as a father with a child? What, what's the thing that triggers that? And there's two in Scripture. And they both reduce down to one thing, but here's the two. Obedience, and then being willing to follow your calling. Let me, let me uh, hit obedience first. Obedience is just the willingness to, even if you're confused, say, I know God wants me to do this, and so I'm going to do it. And what happens when children are obedient? What do parents normally do? They affirm, right? And, it, and they rejoice because the, the step of obedience is something that, that that parent was trying to teach or motivate or instruct or, or 
inspire that child to take that step of obedience where they would become more mature in some sense and, and more like they're supposed to become. And, and that parent always loves when obedience is there and it brings them together. And when there's disobedience, the parent, instead of more of this affirmational huggy thing, has to discipline, which is a sharp way of correcting. And it doesn't feel good, but the parent has to do it because the longer disobedience goes, the greater the what? The separation, right? And so separation is why we discipline, because we love that, that person or that child so much. The relationship is so important. Unity is so important that we have to correct so that we can go back on a course towards unity. But when unity is there, when obedience is there, when rightness is there, the parent loves to affirm and to hug and to say, more of this, this is so pleasing to me, this is so good, isn't this wonderful? And there's this tenderness there. And so all throughout Scripture, the crazy thing about obedience, man, when I first became a Christian, I was like, man, okay, I believe it's true, so I'll do it, but I know it's going to suck. And like half of you here still think this way. I'll be a Christian because I kind of think it's right, but it's going to suck. Why? Because I have to be obedient. And what is obedience? Obedience is just choosing to be really unhappy because that's really what God's rules are. And those are rules. And, and uh, it means that you can't be happy or ever crack a smile. And you got to go to a blank church. I used to fill that in. Now I stopped filling that in. It's not, not nice to criticize denominations. The... That's, that was the biggest switch in my mind when I began to realize that rules are not an end in themselves. They're a means to an end. They're a means to an end of relationship in unity and togetherness. When, when I see a yield sign at one of these roundabouts in Bend, I mean, you know how silly it would be like, ah, 8 o'clock in the morning and a yield sign. It was put there to ruin my day. I'm so angry and frustrated. I'm going to frown. It's just, it's tyrannical. It's there to oppress me and to take away my freedoms. And, and I, I'm, I just hate that. I might submit to it, but I'm going to stew on it all. I mean, it's just rules. That yield sign is put there not for an end in itself, but as a means to an end. It's so that you don't get T-boned, right, in, in the traffic circle. And it's like, oh, cool, I know what to do now. And things will work. And God's rules are the same way. And so when we obey God's rules, when we take little steps of faith, there's a relationality that comes with that. It says all through Scripture, if you do this, then I will do this. If you are obedient, nation of Israel, if you follow my commands, I will bless you. I I so want this together, but you have to take that step of obedience, that step of faith, and trust that I know what's going on, and I will scoop you up and, and hug on you and squeeze you and kiss you, and you will know me. The opposite of that is if you don't obey, the thing I, I least want to do is to correct, but I will because I'm a good dad, and I know that ultimately it's for the greatest good. But so the first epistemic trigger of knowledge Knowing God is just simple obedience. So we come to church a lot of times. We're like, what's that great, amazing thing, that secret, that self-help, whatever, formula? Like Wayne Dreyer. Is that his name? Wayne Dyer. It's not, oh, Phil. And then there's Phil. Anyways, 
what's that thing that, that they've made millions of dollars on in their books that's like the, the super greatest secret? And if we follow that, everything will work in our life. And sometimes we come to church that way, looking for the angels to sing and everything to go unbelievably amazing. And, and, and I think sometimes God is like, you already know what you're supposed to do. You know, you already know. It's just simple obedience. It's just doing what you know, even if it's hard or even if you have to trust me or even if it doesn't make sense. It's, it's not any crazy, wild, secret, mystery, mystery thing. It's, it's just simple obedience. And then I'll walk with you and I'll help affirm that and we'll grow that thing. And, um, and if we're really teachable and if we're really honest about our weaknesses and, and we're malleable, becomes easier sometimes to be obedient and to follow and we know God there. Second one real quick is this. We like to take the verses in scripture like with Moses, there's big ones in, in jo- with Joshua. Don't be afraid, Joshua. Be strong and courageous, Joshua. Be, be, be strong and courageous because I will go with you. Like my power, my presence will go with you. And then Jesus says the same thing at the end. He's like, come on, I'm sending you out. I'm you guys are going to go take over the world, and you're going to meet opposition, and, and this is what I'm asking you to do, but don't worry. Be strong. Be courageous. Why? Because all authority has been given to me. I'm, I can speak like God spoke, and I'm telling you, I will go with you, and I will be with you. My power, my presence are there. And we like to take that with you part of Scripture. Why do we like to take that and talk about it? Because we all want to know God. And so that promise of God being with us, we like to grab hold of that because we want to know God. Well, that promise all throughout Scripture was a secondary thing because God was asking and calling people to things. He was, he was calling Moses to go free his people and he was calling Joshua to lead him into the land and he was calling his disciples to go and be disciple makers and he's calling them to impossible tasks, tasks that are going to scare you and make you want to stay put and never move because it just seems like so hard and it's going to change so much and you're going to have to give up so much and it's really difficult and so in the midst of all of that stress and tension and weight, the promise is, I will be with you. I'll carry it. You just walk forward in simple, humble obedience in this direction I'm calling you to. I'll go with you. Jesus said to his disciples, look, someday you're going to be taken prisoner and thrown into prisons. You're going to be dragged before magistrates, rulers, to give account. Don't worry about what to say. Don't worry about what to say or how to say it, he said, because at that time you will be given what to say because it's going to not be you speaking, but the Spirit of my Father speaking through you. I'll go with you. So we're all hungry to know God. You want to know how you can know God quickest? The epistemic trigger for knowing God? Start walking towards your calling. And humble, step-by-step obedience. But if you know that God has put a burden on you, if you know he's created you for a purpose, if you've had this nagging thing over and over and over again that you were supposed to do, I never, well, I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. Um, I'm only going to preach 20 times this year. It's a big secret. I wasn't going to tell you, but I'm telling you now. It's not a secret anymore. 
um, because I need to read and fill back up. And I also feel like I'm supposed to write. For, for 20 years now, I've felt this burden that I was supposed to write. And so the elders and I talked, and I said, I can't preach every week and fill up at the same time. It's killing me. And I just, not for permanent, but just for this year, I just need some time. And the elders were like, sweet, let's do it. But for me, it was a really weird thing because our elders are, are crazy. I've never worked at a church where they would have been okay with that. Seriously, I've never worked at a church where they would be okay with that because we, we think about pragmatics so much that we take God out of the equation. But for me, it was the fearful thing of going to them and saying that was really about, I have this weight of a calling on me, and, I, and I, there's things I need to learn, and I need to study, and it's tyrannizing me every night looking at these books and not being able to get to it and being torn in, in two, and, and I have to be able to do that. Because if I do that, I will be doing what God made me to do. And that's just where I need to be. And you're in the same place. And you're like, man, how do I do this? I might have to leave my job. I might have to scale back on my expenses so that I have more time. I might have to give up a hobby. I might even have to give up on my health. I love my health so much. You know, Paul gave up on his health. Do you know that? That's part of his following God. It's a crazy thought, but you might have to give up on your health, which might be an idol to you, because you can't do that and this. I don't know what you've got to give up, but there's simple steps, and we all kind of have this picture in our mind that God subtly speaks in. He never argues with us when we go, but God, I couldn't possibly do that because blah, blah, blah. Dallas Willard taught me that, that when God says something to us, he says it once, and he doesn't argue back. Because the minute he has to argue, it diminishes who he is. And now he has to give account to you rather than you giving account to God. And so he'll just wait, and then he'll say it again. And he'll say it again, and he'll say it again. And you know what I'm talking about. It's in your gut, it's in your mind, it's a dream you've always had. It's something you don't want to do, it's something maybe you do want to do. But it's something that's just hard to imagine how you're going to get there. And what we need to stop doing is thinking in terms of next week, and we need to start thinking in terms of three years from now. Jesus took disciples, malleable disciples, and he molded them over a course of years, and then still through the Holy Spirit probably after that. And we need to stop thinking in terms of what can I do right now that puts me on track with my calling, you know, permanently, like, like a light switch. It's on or it's off. And we need to start thinking in terms of process. And just saying, yes, God, I will do whatever it takes to start following my calling. Knowing that whatever difficulties I face, by the way, you want to know who's going to be preaching at this church this year? There's like 20 of the greatest preachers in this country already lined up to be guest speakers. Un, can't say that in church, believable. It is, it is unbelievable. And so I honestly believe that what God is going to do is, is take the teaching at this church to another level and, and at the same time bless, hopefully bless me being able to step back. And so... You know, it's trusting that God will work things out. You just take that step and start moving forward. That's kind of cool. Maybe I'll only preach 15 times now. You guys are like, less can, less can, less can. Yeah.
The, uh, here's the second thing, and, and we'll, we'll go through this quick, but I think it's hugely important. And I think we, mi- we oh, I, th- I really think we always miss this piece, okay? And the piece is capacity. If you want to be used by God, it's the same as if you want to play on the varsity team. It isn't really going to happen if you don't have the capacity You can't sit on the couch and eat potato chips for four years of high school, never do anything, and expect just to be the quarterback because that would be really cool and get you all the girls or whatever. It's just logical. But there's a capacity issue. World Relief is an organization that employs some 2,000 people around the country or around the world and you look at these people, and they're Johns Hopkins grads, and they're, they're this and they're that. And then there's even just humble people and servants that are willing to give their lives away in some of the scariest places of the world. Marcel, who was here the last two weeks with us, talked about going into war-torn areas of Congo where nobody had been for a year or two and praying with his family and literally giving his life to God and saying, God, if you choose to give it back to me, that's okay. And his family fasts and prays while he goes. And he goes to a village get stopped by rebels kind of a thing, and then stays there. They ask the local pastors, is it safe to go to the next village? And the pastors are like, yeah. And and they say, great, would you go with us? And they're like, no, no. And this is Marcel. There's, There's people that have capacity for things, whether it's courage or whether it's technical expertise, but there's a capacity. We can't just Raise our hand one day. Um, not everyone needs to work for World Relief. Most of you need to do what you do in your day-to-day relationships here. But it involves capacity, the ability to do certain things and to have God use you in certain ways. And so let me show you a couple examples of this. If you just turn, we've got we to do this in a hurry, but Luke 8.38. Luke 8.38. Jesus heals this man. He's demon-possessed. You guys remember the story? There's all these movies that use the title of it. Jesus says, what's your name to the demons? And they say Legion because we're many. And it's been like all these exorcist movies, I think, with the name Legion in it and all this. It's, so it's kind of like this cool, like, thriller movie-ish passage of Scripture. And Jesus casts out the demons in this guy. This guy's been living naked in the, in the cemetery, if you picture this. I mean, the just off the grid think of the trauma think of the damage think of the the messing with him i mean just think of how think of how how messed up that is and so jesus heals the man throws out the demons and verse 38 chapter 9 uh, chapter 8 of luke verse 38 the man from whom the demons had gone out begged begged to go with him being Jesus. Now, can you picture this? Somebody on their knees begging and pleading with Jesus, Jesus, I will follow you. Isn't that like poetic? Isn't that what Jesus always asked people to do? Right? So here's this guy doing what Jesus is always asking people to do. He's begging Jesus to follow him. And Jesus says this, Uh, right before that, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. And so the man went away and told all over town how much 
Jesus had done for him. The man begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away. Jesus, I'll leave all to follow you. I will follow you. I want to go with you. No. No, you can't come. You need to go home. Your testimony will be with what I've done for you, but you cannot be one of my disciples. Now, I honestly believe, honestly believe that that was a capacity issue. That this man had issues that that were going to take a lot of time to deal with. Relationships that needed to be restored, time he needed to heal and to begin to learn from God again, to be filled so that his following or whatever he would do would be from the right place. But I honestly believe Jesus, in a very just mature way, said, no, you, you need to be somewhere else. You're not following me, being one of my disciples is not where you're at. Let's turn to Acts, and this is a more probably well-known illustration of this. Acts chapter 15. This is the story of Paul and Barnabas having a disagreement that literally strains their relationship, and they go two different ways. So here's two best friends that have been traveling together, doing missions together, and we come to this verse, chapter 15, verse 36, and it says this, Sometime later, after the council in Jerusalem, sometime later... And this is after Paul's first missionary journey. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work And they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas did take Mark, and he sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, and commended uh, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So when I started going to church, the argument was always, who is right, Paul or Barnabas? Barnabas seems nicer, but who is right? And... um, the, the actual thing here is they're, they're both right according to their calling. What's Paul's calling? To do ministry, right? The guy is nuts. I mean, he, there's no one like him. He's the Green Beret of missionaries. Like He, he is all about doing ministry. And here's this guy, John Mark, who's unreliable, untrustworthy, and Paul says, I can't take you. You don't have the capacity to be with me doing what I'm doing at the level I'm doing it. You can't take part in my calling. Kind of like Jesus, right? You go home. I love you. Go do what, what you need to do, but you're not going to come with me. Now, the interesting thing is, so Barnabas has a different calling. Now, remember, Barnabas was the guy that took Paul when Paul was on the outs, and nobody wanted to talk to him, and nobody wanted to deal with him and all that. Remember that? When Paul first came around, everyone was like, ah, we don't know what to do with Paul. Barnabas went out and took him. Barnabas' calling, he's a coach, is to develop ministers 
pretty logical why Barnabas does what he does, isn't it? His calling, his personality, his nature is to see the potential in guys. And he knows that he can bring the best out of John Mark. He knows that he can take him and and build on the past strengths, work on the weaknesses. And at the end of this process, there is a minister. And we see this later on. Mark is the one who writes the gospel for Peter called Mark based on Peter's accounts and things like that. And he becomes a faithful person all the way to the point where Paul, when he's in prison, asks for him. So so Barnabas gets in there and he's all about developing ministers and he does his job and he's successful at it. And later on, this guy's at that level of doing ministry, probably like Paul, but Paul couldn't afford to take him with at that point in time. Who was right? They both were. They both were. Capacity matters, and it matters in different ways. It matters to the people who are training you. It matters to you and what you're able to do. But the capacity question is huge. And if you lack capacity, there's going to be a limit on what you can do. And the greatest thing that you can be about is pursuing capacity. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about this. Knowledge and wisdom and growth and discernment and skill. And so if you're young, go get an education. Gain experience. Apprentice. doesn't matter how you do it, but there's a way to grow rather than just be social. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're so 99% of our time is all social and social dynamics that 10 years go by, we're exhausted from just maneuvering within social networks and we realize we haven't grown an inch. If you're older, if you're in a career, if you have kids, if you're, it doesn't matter. Find the older guy or find the person that can pour into you and grow your capacity so that you're able to do more than you are now. And part of how you do that is you take a step and do something less than you might dream of. Paul talks about this. He says, he who is faithful with a little will be faithful with much. If you can trust somebody with this much over time and they develop their name and their reputation, you can then give them trust for this much. And so the greatest way to grow your engagement is to start here and do a good job and grow into the next thing and then grow into the next thing. I I feel for this generation of of young people because it's not a critique on any one person, but statistically, they're the most entitled generation that we've ever had. And so it's really hard for this generation to enter into jobs at a low level because they they feel like they're entitled to what they want and they, they feel like they're entitled to it now. And there was a generation, a couple generations back, where you get in here and you work really hard. And over time, you work yourself into the right fit. And it's really hard for young people now because they pass up on opportunities that they feel are beneath them. They don't have the same mindset of getting in and working. Now, there's some great young people. Um, it's It's not a knock on any one individual, but it's a challenge. And I think Christians have a little bit of arrogance too. We don't want to do ushering we don't want to do kids' ministry, and we don't want to lead something administrative. And we don't, I, who knows what it is? But there's a degree to which we get in there, and we do, do a faithful job with it, and then we move on to the next thing. But capacity matters. 
getting people who can develop you, finding a coach matters, whatever the age we are. Capacity comes before responsibility. Right? That's why I don't let my nine-year-old babysit her sisters, even though she wants to. Capacity comes before responsibility. If you want great things in the kingdom, if you want God or other people, other Christians, to hand you responsibility, capacity comes before responsibility. I, uh, we, we need to end here. I, I dream great dreams for this community, for us, for you for people that are going to come, for our kids behind us. I dream great things because I think there's really two options. We can grasp for the inevitable or we can reach for the possible. And I've been around a lot of church culture where we set our sights on a good service every Sunday that a lot of people are going to still critique. And it's inevitable. We're going to have church service every week. People are going to be happy. People are not going to be happy. But it's just this, it's this routine kind of maintenance thing that's going to happen one way or the other. And it's, it is what it is, right? And if that's what we're striving for or reaching for is the inevitable, we're not really trying for the possible. And God has said, if you will try great things for me, if you will follow in obedience into great things, if, if you will just trust me, I will come along and do the heavy work. I'll do the heavy lifting. I will be with you, and you'll know I'm with you. You're going to have that sense of relationship because we're co-laboring in this. And so if we try for the possible, not only can we hit it, but we're going to know God so much more in the process. And so I dream great dreams for God because if we don't dream great dreams, it means we're settling for something like we're just settling for not God and not great and not glory and not change and not possible and not our gifts and not our calling and not anything that dignifies us as humans that have the capacity to grow, develop capacity, and through choice and love and submission— enact change in this world. We, we lose everything about what's supposed to be, could be, should be, ought to be, what would make the church look like a city on a hill. And if we don't dream those dreams, it won't happen. And we can do it. We can. So let's pray. Um, and let's leave, oh man, let's, let's dream. Let's try for the possible. Father, uh, we commit this Sunday to you. We commit this church to you. We commit our actions to you. We, we want to commit our humility to you. We want to commit our weaknesses to you. Refine us, redeem us, change us, mold us, shape us, both individually, as families, as small groups, as a church, as men, as women. We just pray that you would mold us and shape us, that we might be able to be used by you, that you would be able to be with us and come alongside us and make an impact in this world as we live out that calling as Christians, a whole, holy and royal priesthood of people called unto your purposes. Father, we love you. In Christ's name.